From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. Instagram, it's one of the most popular social networking applications. Everyone tells you it's the place to be. If you post great images, people will find out about what you do and then you'll be set. Yet if you're looking to tell people about what you do, Instagram suffers from a huge problem. You can't add links to your posts. Every Instagram profile has one link for the entire profile, which has forced people to find creative solutions, like continuously updating that URL and telling your audience to check the link in bio. It's pretty clunky and a frustration of many users. Now, today's founders suffered from that exact problem, and so they came up with a solution. It's called Linktree, and it's a way of generating just one link that you can then use to direct your audience to all your other platforms. So Linktree is a tool that helps you connect all your audiences to your entire online ecosystem. Uh, and what that means, is it gives you, once you sign up, you get a link and you're able to add links and um, links to a whole bunch of extra content and other functionality that allows you to direct your audiences to the lowest path of conversion. This is Alex Zakaria. He's the CEO. And in a couple of years, Alex and his brother Anthony have built a rapidly growing platform with close to 4 million users. But rapid success is rarely quick. And for Alex and Anthony, their journey starts in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, you know, we had a nice childhood. I think we owe a lot to our parents. Our father and our grandparents came here with nothing as immigrants and worked their butts off to be able to uh, yeah, provide for us in the way they did. And we, yeah, I think, you know, we went to good schools and had a you know, nice neighbourhood, that whole, that whole thing. Alex and Anthony grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Their grandparents came across to Australia from the south of Italy and started a business importing musical instruments. And then Alex and Anthony's parents also started their own musical business. You know, I still remember getting picked up after school and in primary school and literally whatever it was, 3.30, and then going straight to the music store, hanging around there until mum would be ready to go home at 6.37 kind of thing and just being surrounded by loud musical instruments and watching mum and dad work. And dad was a luthier as well, so he was working on violins and doing all those kind of things. So, yeah. Yeah, we saw a lot of hard work ethic to, to make ends meet and provide for family and get set up pretty early on. And we look back on it now as adults and kind of see, see where it was all coming from. This is Anthony. Dad would often, you know, we'd have dinner and then he'd be in the garage fixing violins and cellos because to have to take them to schools who were customers the next morning. And so he would go early for a meeting at a school with a music director, come back, pick us up, take us to school, go back to work. Even our grandfather, coincidentally, he also ran his music business with his brother. And that was all a whole big family business. It was actually, you know, one of the biggest music distributors, grew to be one of the biggest musical instrument distributors in the country for a while there. And similarly had a very strong work ethic, but also had very, very strong family values. And it was always about, everything was always about the family and providing for the family and being as a family together all the time, mm-hmm. even though he would be up and out the door at five or six in the morning. He'd always make sure he'd have dinner with his family and be there for them at every moment he could. So I think a lot of that trickled down. Um, Even growing up around a family business, mum and dad always instilled, it wasn't really forced to work as a family. It just felt natural because mum and dad working together, our older brother was working in the family business and mum and dad definitely instilled a lot of those family values. It was always about family time and like commitment to doing stuff as a family anytime there was a cousin's birthday it'd be a big family thing growing up and i just thought that was normal and my friends would always be like hey do you want to come out tonight I'm like oh no i've got you know so-and-so's cousin's birthday or so-and-so's auntie's thing it would be a family thing on at least once a week and my, my friends didn't understand yeah. what the, why we'd always have something on <laughs> um but i think now looking back on it it's actually really special because we're all still really close there's like 25 or 26 aunties, uncles and cousins, and we're all really, really close. So being around, you know, your parents being entrepreneurs, your grandparents, 
being entrepreneurs, you know, in the music business as well, were you encouraged from an early age to, you know, sort of like pick up an instrument and uh, yeah, be part of, you know, like a musical life? Very much so. Um, even sometimes if we didn't want to, it was very much like mm. you always, almost felt pretty bad around it about not wanting to because you an array of music always around you and yeah so we all all learned different instruments i tried my hand at the cello piano guitar bass i think you tried your hand at some weird stuff yeah it was almost felt like an obligation like just surrounded by it all the time and by all these amazing instruments that people you know that love absolutely are passionate about playing guitar for, for example would dream about owning these guitars and we're sitting around these this shop all day where we could just play them and just i don't think we ever really got that passion but yeah i think i had a phase at some point where i wanted to be a conductor yeah you I did think just being inspired by my nonno and i just had this thing where i went to mum and dad and said i wanted to do a term of each instrument just to learn about each instrument and then be a conductor i think that lasted two terms yeah <laughs> yeah i think i kept i kept going after school for a bit playing in a few bands playing bass in a few bands and, and that kind of thing but then being around music and the industry became more interesting and being behind the scenes became more interesting than actually playing and just sort of helped separate separate and keep a passion of listening to music but sort of being on the business side what's the biggest thing that you've learnt seeing your parents be entrepreneurs and your grandparents as well probably the dedication to doing something and doing it properly if you want to do something just get on and do it and go all in but just like yeah do it properly and find the time to just do it no one's gonna no one's gonna do it for you um dad always has random sayings about that kind of stuff that are translated from his dialect that can't remember the top of my head now but it's always around the tone is always that no one's gonna you know it's like get off your butt and do it if you want to do it no one's gonna do it for you and i think that came from he always tells a story of coming to australia with a toolbox and five bucks in his pocket and that was it and kind mm -hmm. of having to go to uni for a bit start a job just find his way, learn a new language. And it was that whole thing of like, no one's going to give me a chance here. I've got to find a chance and yeah. make it happen. You used to always tell us that, and you know, you kind of go, uh, yeah, cool, dad. It's not really until you're a little bit older and say you go overseas by yourself, even with a mobile phone and money and all those things, and you're still like a little bit disorientated. Imagine coming here with absolutely nothing and no connection back to your family at home or anything mm. like that. And I think, you know, there were so many immigrants at that time that were doing that. It's pretty fascinating what they've been able to build from then. I think for me, that work ethic, certainly, that get up and go and, and actually make things happen. And that definitely came from our non-law as well. And, and the creativity of things, like if you're going to go and work and go and work and work hard, but if you want to create something that doesn't exist, go and do that as well. He was I still remember going into our normals. He had like a wood workshop under his house. He'd always be showing me these weird and wonderful things he'd invented. Just like he invented a new way to put frets on a guitar that the Australian guitar company started licensing off him. And that was just like a side thing that he was doing. Um, and he was explaining to me how it worked when I was like 10. Wow. And just, yeah, always me, um, yeah, being fascinated by like the ingenuity and the ability to be able to just create something from nothing. Throughout their childhood, Alex and Anthony worked in the family business along with their other siblings. However, as they finished school, they started to think about the future. Anthony, who's six years older than Alex, took a year to work in the family business and help with managing artist endorsements. And he then went on to study entrepreneurship at RMIT. All this time, he was still working in the family's business and also working in a cafe. But like everyone studying entrepreneurship, there's always a business idea burning on the side. I kind of had like, I was trying to start, yeah, I was trying to start a like a media um, thing that was like, you were able to, it was these. It was these mobile, like promo people would be around, but they'd have these screens over their head. I don't know if they're still around anymore, but like this backpack that would have, you know, the technology to be like a CD player back then with like a little um, screen above their heads. They'd play animations and be, be like a media buy for brands. I tried. I saw some happening in the US. I tried to launch it here, licensed technology and that kind of thing. Almost got it off the ground. Didn't. After finishing university, Anthony decided it was time for a change, and so he packed up and moved to Sydney. 
I knew I always wanted to be around music, but I um, wanted to expand horizons a bit. So I moved to Sydney 2007, 2008, not long after uni finished. And I got a job at the Sound Alliance, which is now Junkie Media, Mm -hmm. looking after ad sales, media and marketing partnerships. And basically the client base was record labels and music festivals and promoters and that kind of thing. And it was looking after across all their music publication titles, which were, I think, uh, Faster, Louder and In The Mix, if you remember yes, those websites. Yes, yes, Yeah. That would have been before they launched Junkie. Before, and, yeah. yeah, it was yeah. all about selling display ads and that kind mm. of thing before native content was a thing or the thing. And so that was that was a really good experience, being able to, I was living in another city and built a whole great network of friends, relationships, colleagues, which kind of then grew into starting an artist management business. So once I left there, that was when I, I definitely knew I was like, I don't want to work for anyone else again. Mm-hmm. Not that it was a bad experience. I was like, I just want to do my own thing. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And so started managing bands. Meanwhile, in Melbourne, Alex had also started studying entrepreneurship and after a couple months decided it wasn't for him. So he was continuing to work in the family business but he was also running events and parties on the side. And it was at this point the brothers realised it was time to start working together. Had a little artist management business going. We had about four or five artists we were managing. And I was doing a bit of freelance digital marketing work for a similar client base to what I had because artist management wasn't really paying the bills. And so at what point in time do you decide that you want to start your own agency? I was, yeah, so I was managing DJs. I was, yeah, running parties, managing DJs and also had that record label. And I think it just became quite organic then when when we were starting to work together and doing a lot of that work together, it was still very much Anthony looking after more of the live band side of things and I was looking after the DJs and electronic music side of things. I, growing up, was always just, I think, just a bit more of that, like, a nerd, um... In like the in terms of like, my mates would out be out playing sports at lunch or mucking mm-hmm. around with the football or even kids playing games in the library and I would literally be on a spreadsheet working out formulas because yeah. that just was what excited me and I wanted to do those kind of things. So I have no idea why I never taught myself programming. Still, <laughs> like, <laughs> sounds learned, like you have the, the mind yeah, for it. Right? Learned, yeah, learn Microsoft Access and Excel inside out, but never taught myself programming for some reason. I don't but, think you could say focus enough for more than an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Anthony was doing um, some freelance uh, media buying and digital marketing. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that with him one night and was like, we been doing this so much mm. better. Like I had no, neither of us had much experience or I definitely had no experience in using Google Analytics and AdWords and all those kind of things. But I just knew what the capabilities were and what the possibilities mm. were. Um, yeah, we knew it could be done a lot better. And or we assumed anyway, we kind yeah. of like. Well, I guess we also saw the, you know, the, the rise of, social advertising and new ad tech that was that was around and what was being done in you know e-com mm-hmm. um and so that wasn't really being applied into the music space yeah brand and e-com were just doing all these amazing things remarketing conversion tracking mm-hmm. which seemed just completely normal now but it definitely wasn't being used in quite a lot of sectors back then it was really only those that i guess could afford digital marketing professionals or to afford to use expensive technology or enterprise technology that were able to do it. Sure. And as AdWords and Facebook were making it a little bit more normal, um, yeah, we kind of, we said, hey, let's let's have a crack at this. And the clients that Anthony was working with, we went in and kind of leveled it up from media buying to say, hey, let's do this social advertising, let's do AdWords. And hey, if someone doesn't enter buying a ticket, we can actually remarket to them and get them to buy a ticket. And based on how much they how many tickets they were going to buy and what they were interested in and what genres they were interested in and starting to get really specific um, and using insights to actually do more performance-based marketing, um, which was, and especially in the music industry, it was not being done because generally they, the whole, people in music or music festivals or anyone selling tickets for that matter don't own the entire funnel. So... Mm-hmm. You'll be buying, like, you'll go to a festival website to learn about the website, and then you end up on a completely different ticketing website with a different domain to be able to actually buy the ticket. 
and technologically that jump across the main was a little bit harder or just kind of wasn't really done. So we worked out a way to fix that and we're able to really just start applying a lot of really, uh, I guess, intricate strategies and tactics to be able to deliver and in marketing that would, you know, sell tickets far cheaper and more effectively than mm. what they were able to do before. And actually you go back to promoters and say, hey, this is how much you spent on marketing, this is how much you actually sold from it. Whereas before it was very much brand awareness-based marketing where they would throw money at it and hope it would stick. That was probably, I moved back to Melbourne from Sydney because this sort of stuff was picking up. I was like, all right, mm-hmm. Alex, I need to be in the same room to do this properly. Alex and Anthony started their agency called Bolster and they had a very niche focus, the music industry. And that helped them get known and acquire more clients. I think it was just, we just applied ourselves in the knowledge and we had enough relationships to be able to just give it a go. And mm-hmm. it kind of just was pretty organic and word of mouth. We didn't do advertising or we didn't do, it was all very much relationship driven and just like nobody else was really doing it. I guess it was that thing of people didn't know they needed this service, if that made sense. It was like, oh, wow, you can do that? Oh my God, I didn't know. Oh yeah, okay, of course. Like doing a specialist job because marketing managers had to be all-rounders. They couldn't be specialist performance digital marketing people as well as the rest of their job. So we were able to take that off their hands and do it really, really well and be that plug-in digital specialist. We just hit up everyone that we knew and just went about it and the um, word kind of spread and it grew very organically, very quickly. I think this is where... uh I guess a big belief in like going niche Mm. came from we when we do digital marketing for music and events and that's all we do there's no reason for people not to give us a crack or at least talk to us about it and it became you know we would just get a lot of referrals and I think obviously looking back on that period now we're very fortunate that it grew so organically and um but yeah, it was just referral and, and we never really had to do any crazy outbound marketing or sales. Like, mm. in fact, like we actually probably never really actually won a client when we actually had to go pitch. We that was, we weren't good at selling in that way. It was like <laughs> this relationship mm. building, showing them what we could actually do that we were actually always able to um, generally land the deal. And most of those clients are still our clients, um, still the clients of that agency. And it's at this point, a couple of years into their journey with Bolster, that they ran into a problem. A problem that would lead them to Linktree. We'll be back with that story in a moment. Alex and Anthony Zachariah had founded an agency called Bolster, and it was doing incredibly well. But a couple of years into their journey, they ran into a problem, and it was around social media. They were managing a lot of digital accounts for music festivals and other events, and they were getting frustrated by changing links. We were managing the the socials and the digital for heaps of uh, major music festivals and just got really sick of having to change the link in bio every time we shared a post and it was also around the time the instagram had changed their feed from chronological to algorithmic right and everyone was so annoyed about it and freaking out freaking out yeah Yeah. in a more practical sense like the issue actually was that it could mean that your visitors or people that came to your um or were searching through their feed could see a post from you that was three or four days old and it might have something about Lincoln bio and you go, that person would go back to your Lincoln bio and now your bio has changed and it's no longer relevant to whatever that post originally was. So we wanted to solve that problem mainly for us and for our clients and who we were working with and came up with the, yeah, the idea to, um, you know, have one link in your bio that you don't have to change and you can just have one really easy to use separate platform where you can drag and drop the links and add them and um, schedule them and get your analytics and uh, that was probably the vagueness of the brief that we gave. <laughs> I didn't even think it was that and far. It wasn't yeah. even that. Yeah. It was like, let's just have like a link and a separate, you know. Just a page with many links yeah. on it. Basically, yeah. yeah. And it's like that simple. Um, we said it to our developer and I think, and yeah, he, he built out the prototype in about six hours. It was like that morning we had a meeting with him. He built it out and was like, is this what you mean? I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we meant. Now they had a prototype 
Alex and Anthony had to give it a name. And for that, they leaned on their co-founder, Nick, who came up with the name Linktree. This was in early 2016, and the team started rolling out Linktree to all their clients. It was a side business intended to solve a problem, but it started expanding. I think they were just seeing it in other people's socials, right? So Splendor had put it in their Instagram bio and a few other clients had done it and um, they were discovering it and... You know, it was, it was still like, I think one of the first early organic signups was like the city of Melbourne, which us being in Melbourne, I was like, that's awesome. Um, you know, like we, we love the city and we reached out to them and still at that stage, being able to have like this really personal service where mm-hmm. um, we're doing everything we could and just really stayed on top of being able to develop out features that early users were wanting. Yeah. And then, so we kept doing it that way it was still growing the agency and generally working on Linktree as a side hustle going home at night right continuing to push that I assume you thought that it would just remain Mm. just like a side project it's nice a few people signed up that's great yeah Yeah. there's quite a few of those things we always had lots of ideas and we're like hey there'll be a little side project little side project and the agency was like scaling rapidly I think that point it was 12 or 15 staff maybe yeah Um, through, through that year it went to I think first year was one to eighteen, and then the following year up to thirty-five staff or something. So we're dealing with like a yeah scaling agency client work, which is just mm. generally a lot of work. I'm dealing um, on that with people on that level, and then yeah, Linktree is starting to scale as well, and we'd be dealing with all that that work and generally hiring one or two people a month and trying to scale and then going home and doing the same with Linktree. At what point did you realize that this is something a little bit special? This is this is a bit bigger than still, you thought it was going to be? Look, still not for a little while longer. Um, mm. Probably a lot later than we should have noticed. Um, it was, I believe, a little bit uh, later that year. We kind of, it was probably in July, I think, around that, that year when we actually took the whole team up to Splendor in the Grass as um, a retreat for the company and... Mm. We decided that that week, that either side of the festival that we're going to be there, we're going to rebuild the entire platform um, and refactor it because, again, like I said, we built that kind of prototype really quickly. It was just a way to get it out there and see what it was and if it would solve this problem. And because people were signing up, we're like, oh, people actually like this. People are signing up organically. They're starting to ask for features that are a little bit hard to build in the way that we've built it. Um, so we spent a bunch more time actually refactoring and redesigning it and far less refined version of what you see today, but with the actual live preview and um, mm. and the links and those kind of things where before that, it, it didn't have any of that. Around this time, people were still organically finding out about the service and the team were planning a launch for their new version of Linktree. Alex says they wanted to be prepared for the moment when they'd put the service on Product Hunt and they'd see a rapid increase in downloads. They didn't want the site to crash. However, before they could even launch the new version, someone posted it to Product Hunt for them. And it was the night before our sister's wedding, of which I was in the bridal party, and someone put it up on Product Hunt. Um, and so it started getting like this spike in signups and then getting these alerts at like two in the morning the night before the wedding, got on the computer, realized that someone hunted it, which was awesome. And there was just like hundreds of comments, people trying to reply, and then like thousands of signups and the servers teetering on the edge of <laughs> disaster. Um, and so, yeah, luckily the photographer did his wonders the next day and hid <laughs> the bags under my eyes. Um, but we were, yeah, we were, were you like the whole time through the wedding thinking, oh, what's going on now? Let yeah. Check the signups. <laughs> yeah. Is there more signups? Has the website gone down? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like watching that. So, yeah, I tried to push it out of my head and, and really be present in the moment for our sister. But, um, yeah, it was, it was super exciting. It was always wanted it to be there. And about a few days after that is when Alicia Keys signed up. It was, yeah, a bit surreal. I think we were still in that co-working space. We were looking at, um, we still had a thing on Slack where we would get a notification every time someone signed up. So it was kind of five to 10 signups a day, like I said, or maybe 20 by that time. And it was, it was really exciting looking through who signed up and, and looking at everyone. So we saw Alicia Keys pop up. I'm like, that's not real. That can't be real. <laughs> we like looked into it and looked at the email address. I'm like, oh, this is, yeah, this is real. And we're like doing a little happy dance around the office and all the other businesses that are in there just looking at us going, what the hell is going on? Uh, so it turned out that it was Alicia Keys' uh, digital agency that signed up and they'd seen it in Product Hunt. So we reached out to them and said, hey, we'll give you 
free customization, free features, all this extra dedicated support if you sign up the rest of your roster. And so they did that. They signed up, I think, Eminem and Tupac and Pearl Jam and The Killers. And that's kind of really what started pushing us into that that side of the world and, and really being seen by some major users. And I think for us, it was probably the most extra gratifying because coming from the music background, essentially we really had music in mind when we built this thing and when we designed it. It's such a fragmented industry where you have, for a musician, they'll have their merch on one platform and their tickets being sold on another platform mm-hmm. and they're streaming on another platform. It's not one cohesive e-commerce platform where they can't have all their revenue. So to have one unified place where they can connect all the dots was super important for them. And that's definitely where it kind of connected the easiest for people. And now it serves so many purposes across so many verticals and people are really showing us the way that they're using it across different uh, user groups, which is exciting. Uh, but yeah, that for us at that time was yeah so fascinating to watch and exciting. It also helped validate some of the product too because we were able to work so closely with her team and they helped us kind of say, oh, I reckon you could build that or wouldn't it be cool if it did that sort of thing? And it helped us sort of yeah. get that, that, that really early feedback as well. Right. So you were you were actively talking to Alicia Keys management team figuring out what they really wanted in the product. Yeah. Yeah, and they were super forthcoming with ideas and and really what, you know, and we're obviously so dedicated to keeping them on board and just making sure we we're going to be delivering on what they were requesting and even though we knew so much about what how people would need to use it in the music industry, actually hearing from like artists of that caliber with that many followers and that many label partnerships and those kind of things and how it would actually need to work. Um, so we put a lot of effort into building out functionality for them. But for the most part, it's really from a, a, a branding customization point of view to make sure that it all suits. And so Leap Links, for example, which basically allows you to completely bypass your link tree and go directly to one of the links that was on your link tree, that came from the idea of uh, you know Alicia Keys needing to release a record. Um, and not wanting to confuse people with a bunch of links and just wanted just to wanted straight to, go to Spotify. Straight to the latest record. Exactly. This is what we care about right now. And for a certain period, for seven hours or something, and then going straight back to the list of links, um, which serves another purpose of actually being able to help people discover and aid the discovery of the rest of your content outside of just that one link. Alex and Anthony had just one developer from their digital team working on Linktree in the early days. But as more and more people signed up to the platform, they were able to start dedicating more and more of his time to their side business. But as that started to grow, they had to balance the already growing agency with their newfound digital success. It was all in all the time between both things and split focus going, we've got this product that's really cool and has a lot of potential but crap, there's a website that needs to go live in two days for this client, all these new festivals announcing next week and managing a team becomes a whole other set of challenges and growing a team. And I guess the you know the thing you're not ready for when you just want to do stuff is all the, you know, the um, business stuff and business admin that comes along with any kind of startup or business that, you know, we had, at that point we had to move offices. So, you know, finding a space to rent in itself, doing a, signing a lease, um, figuring out payroll tax, employment contracts, all this sort of stuff is also happening alongside mm-hmm. that. And then with Linktree as well, there's, you know, being a global product, there's privacy policies and you got to deal with and all sorts of stuff. So it was very, just trying to figure out who to, who to, how to split our time and who was doing what was definitely mm-hmm. a learning. This probably sounds ridiculous to most people, but it actually was probably the thing that got us through. We all lived together for a couple of years. <laughs> so I had I'd moved back from Sydney. Alex had moved into a, a, a place near the office and had a couple of his housemates that had moved out. So I'd moved into one room and I was actually going between New York and Melbourne for about two and a half years during this time because my now wife was had a job in New York and she'd moved mm-hmm. there. So I was doing two months there, working from there, two months back in Melbourne. So I was in Melbourne, I was living with Alex. Nick had moved back from overseas just before he started working with us at Linktree. I was at his parents. Alex is like, dude, what are you doing? You're miles away. You're wasting two hours in traffic. Come move in with me. So mm-hmm. the three of us were in this house all throughout this kind of two and a bit year period. And that was actually, that was kind of the only way for us to manage because after hours is when we'd have our time together to work and plan stuff, which most people would think is really, really unhealthy and probably is a bit, but also- It's definitely unhealthy. It was definitely unhealthy. Necessary. For the whole work-life balance thing. But 
it was actually really productive at the same time because we're able to just bounce ideas, get stuff done together. You would be able to get stuff through the day because you were very much just like running from thing to thing during the day, just keeping up. So very much a learning in that taking the time to to taking the time out to plan and think ahead is just as important as the actual doing and executing. Easier said than done now because we never, you know, we never really set out to be like, you know, Link Tracy's thing and we put together a deck and we're going for investment and he's a five-year plan. It was like, he's a, he's a problem that needs fixing. Mm-hmm. Let's work out and keep working on fixing and fixing. It was always about the product first and fixing problems first rather than like, let's turn this into the biggest company in the world, which, you know, now with hindsight, we're getting better at that planning stuff. But yeah, during that, during that time, it was very much like just one thing after the other. So how did Linktree go from a side business to its own company? That's coming up after this quick break. Linktree had seen great success. They had the likes of Alicia Keys and Eminem using their product and they were growing rapidly. Alex says around 2,000 people were signing up to Linktree every day in early 2017. And by the end of the year, they were seeing five or 6,000 users every day. The biggest challenge that year really was most of that scale was coming from overseas um, and still is. So it's global from day one, you know, users in the States. Um, and that just comes with practical problems. Like mm. we should be posting on Instagram during the US day, not an hour day. And you can't schedule mm-hmm. an Instagram because someone needs to stay up to, to <laughs> someone needs to get up at <laughs> four in the morning and make a post. Um, yep. and we need to, yeah, think, look at all our reporting within US time zones and all these kinds of things, um, mm. that you get used to pretty quickly. And how, how are you funding Linktree during that time? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll, we were supporting it through the agency and personally putting money into it and, and keeping it up. I guess, yeah, the, the main cost was the infrastructure, but it was around that year that we um, put out the pro version as well. So we'd, we'd started recognizing that users, to our surprise, were signing up and wanting to use this product. And there was so many other people with the same problem that we had, um, which was exciting. But then the next thing was that users were actually saying, hey, we want this feature. We want to be able to do this and recognize there was an opportunity to create revenue uh, through it. So, yeah, even when we started, we never never expected to create a paid version of it. So we set out to work out how to actually be able to create a plan and be able to actually pay for the subscription and get access to extra features and build out a bunch of extra customization options and analytics options as the first thing that we launched. And still remember launching that and sitting at home, sitting at my girlfriend's house when I was supposed to be at the dinner table um, when we... <laughs> My, our developer called and said, hey, it's it's live. And I'm sitting there just refreshing, like, someone's going to pay for it. Someone's going to pay for it. Someone's going to pay for it. It took about five hours of just <laughs> waiting for it. And eventually one came through that wasn't us. And I was just like, yes, someone's someone's actually on the first day of launching, like, pulled out their wallet and, and spent their hard-earned dollars on, on something we had built, which was really incredible. Around this time, Linktree was making enough money to cover the salary of their developer, and so they started expanding, putting on more developers as the platform grew. One of the mistakes many businesses make is not working out what their users want, but Alex says they were very focused on talking to users to figure out what their platform needed to be. Yeah, so in terms of the features, we, we just spent so long actually spending time talking to users. Um, we were such a... We just made a really conscious effort to be super user-driven and, and customer-driven and working out what they wanted um, and whatever they wanted the most um, is what we built. So as well as knowing, you know, thinking that we know the best on what our users want, um, there's definitely big, one big learning that we had was there's a certainly a tipping point where you think you, you you know you might know better than what the users think in in terms of what we actually want to put out and the and the and the features we're putting out and then it gets to the point where we put out a couple of features that don't necessarily hit the mark and have a realization where the users know better and we mm. don't know we don't know our users anymore as well as we used to and, and it's going to take a lot more research and a lot more um, talking to users to work out uh, what it is they want so we spend a lot of time doing that so generally it was whatever 
came first, um, or so whatever they wanted um, came first, and that definitely served us really well in terms of being able to grow the the paid version of the product. And when we put out the first version, we did all these things to just make it a really great product that people wanted to use. It was unlimited links, unlimited lots of things so that people would want to use a product. And when we brought out the pro product, we needed to do something to make sure that the pro version was worth paying for. But we always took this mentality towards it that we should always add value to the pro version and never remove value from the free version. You know, reduce the amount of links that people could access on the free version. Instead, we would add value through customization options and extra features and analytics mm-hmm. and making the pro version better. By mid-2018, Linktree hit their first million users, and it was around this time they made a decision to put Alex in charge of Linktree, while Anthony would stay focused on the agency. They'd all be in the same building, but they wanted to reduce confusion amongst their teams who were getting pulled across different projects. So now that now that we, we did that, it was able to, to be a bit more strategic and see something that Alex may not in terms of we should be hiring these kinds of people to do these sorts of things and I'll go off and do that and help bring it to the table um, whereas he's in the detail all the time and then same with the agency I'm in the detail on that and he'll come in over the top of something being like why haven't we done this look at this new idea I've got because he's not in the client detail anymore so it's actually Mm -hmm. almost serving us better in a way being able to do that. The brothers don't remember doing much to celebrate their first million users because they were so focused on keeping everything running. But Linktree kept growing rapidly and in 2019, it passed 3 million users, which Alex says was a different story. Yeah, we definitely celebrated 3 million users. Um, But yeah, it was kind of, it was, you know, when we look back at it now, we go, okay, literally some tech startups are like, striving for this number of a million users and we were still kind of operating as a side hustle um, at a million users and and probably should have been putting more, you know, we put a lot of attention. And when I say more attention, there's probably no more attention we could give. We were given absolutely everything we could to it um, across all our time, going home and still, you know, if we left the office or went to bed um, or stopped working before 2 a.m., it would be unusual. We were definitely burning the candle at both ends and doing a lot of work. How did you avoid burnout during that time? Um, or didn't, didn't you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't w- know how Anthony got through it. Yeah, I got. I was. I think I. I was better at going to bed earlier than you. <laughs> you were like, "No, nah, I'm in the zone at midnight. Don't worry." And maybe it's because I'm older than you. I was like, Mm-mm-mm. "Let's get up early and worry about it in the morning." But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think just maybe I'm still suppressing it somehow and it's going to come later. Yeah, <laughs> it's on the way. It's a hard thing to do, but I think, um, yeah, now we've definitely learned the lesson where we're better off trying to look after ourselves and getting some sleep. So otherwise, we won't be, won't be around really yeah. to help out. How are, you, how are you handling things like support requests and stuff from, from all of your clients that are overseas? Yeah, uh, <laughs> We were getting in the thousands of requests per day and so many of them similar requests. And that was so important for us to give the direction of the product. We really actually, you know, we would we would all spend time in support and actually answering questions throughout the day. We definitely didn't put enough emphasis on it early on. Like we would kind of let that go for a few days. And, and when we would, had a chance, we would get back to it. Um, log in and just like answer the important ones and um, it definitely was probably wouldn't have been an amazing experience for our users at that time but we um, built out a roster system around casual staff that would come in and uh, distribute around the world and be able to log in and and got that down to be able to just answer all those questions throughout the day and built out a solutions and knowledge base article and we're still improving that process now in terms of making sure that team is upskilled and, and knowledgeable on the product and across the changes we're making and all those kinds of things. But yeah, that was definitely a a big challenge trying to keep up with that volume. And it was also a big lesson, like uh, Nick loves it. He was always looking at it because if we're getting that many user requests or support requests, it means we haven't designed it well enough. If people aren't be able to work it out for themselves. So he was always wanting to do the support work to be actually really understand. And it's also, it's a really good, I guess, anecdotal uh, knowledge of, how our users think and the way they ask mm-hmm. questions and the way they think. And so generally when we have new staff and new team members start, um, especially in the design 
team will say they'll they'll design something amazing and and have really complex and does all these things and we're like go spend two hours in support and talk to our users um and learn how they think and and almost immediately afterwards they come and just like wipe mm. everything away and start again because it is just such a fascinating uh look into the way mm. people think and and the way um people use the product No matter how simple we thought everything was and how it looked and the language we tried to have on the landing page and all that stuff, like, there's no other way to make it any simpler. And that user um, feedback always helped me form that, like Ellie said. But do you remember that? Do you remember thinking that one user that went, we had this tagline that was like, you only get one chance to link, make it do more. I think there was something like that was on there. Yeah. And this one user said the things like, hey, I've just signed up for Linktree, but I know you only get one chance. I don't want to stuff it up. So can you help me out? And we're like, oh, oh, wow, that's really cute. And like, oh, okay, we better, maybe that tagline isn't, the right way to go because we thought you only get one chance to link you know make it make your one bio link or link in your twitter profile do more for you like oh wow he's not even thinking at that level they're thinking mm-hmm. at this yeah so it was a yeah, really really fascinating insight to all that and we still and that also helped inform a lot of our support articles and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. because um yeah which still is really anthony you were you were more focused on the sort of agency aspect and what were some of the like differences that you noticed between you know the two businesses that you're running you know between running an agency and also a tech product that is scaling rapidly yeah um the product linktree the the SaaS product is is what you're selling and it's about bettering that and that experience but in the agency it's people and the service and so the products are the people in a way and so the how you hire and the ideas you have translating that into something people want to buy and pay you for and then delivering on that is a massive challenge because there's so many moving parts, whether it's a Facebook campaign or producing a piece of branded content for a, a brand like Red Bull or YouTube. It's all about the creative output and, and the people. So managing teams, building teams, putting some structure. We were always very one-to-one with our clients. So the person doing the work was the one talking to the client. There wasn't any layers of fat like there was in lots of agencies who always had a very flat structure. As the agency was growing, we had to be like, we can't do everything anymore. We need some, you know, more senior people. And that also meant we also had to grow the team because staff were with us for two or three years and wanted to be able to progress them into new roles and um, promotions as well. So yeah, figuring out ways how to do that and have have other people manage people within the business was definitely a big learning and also challenge being a letting go as well. <laughs> like someone else can handle this and, and I don't need to micromanage it. That was definitely a, a hard one to deal with, but also liberating. How were you guys thinking about, about culture with these sort of like two separate businesses kind of all like coexisting under, under the one kind of entity? How are you, how are you thinking about developing a good culture and like, how, do, how were you measuring that? It was always very much about, finding people that were passionate about what they did and people were able to be autonomous because of the nature of the work being very reactive. We didn't have a lot of time. I guess it came back from how we started the business too. We you know, we saw that other agencies would have all these rules like we need five day lead time minimum to do anything. And we were like, five days, we'll do it in five minutes, let's go. And we kind of built the agency around that reactiveness. So we needed to build a very autonomous team the team that was passionate about what they did in the entertainment space, passionate about digital marketing or, or content creation or whatever it was. So they were sort of things we were trying to, we were looking for and trying to instill. Team surveys and, yeah. and definitely measuring it. And it was always just such a massive thing for us to make sure everyone we hired was a culture fit. And there was definitely a certain culture that existed within Bolstar. You know, people that really love music, people that also love digital marketing and um, also technical enough to do the digital, the actual paid performance work. And it really grew from there. Bolson now has social team and web and content creation and brand activation and digital. And there's all still just this amazing culture of people that really love and are passionate about the entertainment and music and, and band together to, to make that happen. Um, and it was, yeah, early last year where we really made, we completely separated the companies. We really need to be able to build this separate culture the way those two businesses operate are different. 
they're still under the same roof, but which we enjoy because they're all friends and there's different people where everyone can hang out with at lunch and we can do things together like do yoga and meditation and we do we feed everybody like everyone has team lunch together provided on mondays and free breakfast and where they all can do that together and it's, mm-hmm. it's a great social culture in that way but then in separate areas of the building and can really focus and get to work linktree now has close to 4 million users and it's still growing rapidly more than 10,000 people sign up to the platform every day, and they have more than 130 million unique visitors every month. A lot of their signups have traditionally come from the US, but they're seeing huge growth in Brazil, Indonesia, and Argentina. Brazil's a really interesting one um, and really exciting. Our biggest user is actually Brazilian in terms of follower numbers, and we've now hired a, a Portuguese speaking, a Brazilian internally full-time to start producing Portuguese-based content um, and be able to do business development in Portuguese and all those kind of things. We're seeing that as a really, really important thing. Um, it's nowhere near as big from a pro and paid perspective, but definitely from an awareness and growth. Um, and when you look at some of the major social accounts around the world, they're generally big soccer players, those kind of things actually from Brazil. Um, so it's really important. Indonesia is scaling massively. Um which is kind of driving the growth in Asia as a whole. And then, yeah, Germany and the UK. But from a, a big focus for us this year is to really get the paid version across some other non-English speaking countries. The Linktree team is still quite small. When I recorded the interview, they were just 12 people, including the founders. And like all small teams, they've had to work out how to manage the infrastructure required to keep their service functional. And like all products that experience rapid growth, They've had a few moments where everything could have gone wrong. Yeah, there's been it's been a few moments. Yeah, a couple, wasn't there? <laughs> was, we got banned in Russia one time. That's right. Um, for like an entire year, which was what what happened in Russia? We don't know. There was, so we saw, you know, when competitors pop up like it is, you know, we created this product and that didn't, nothing else existed like it. And now there's a you know a few others that range from doing some really nice and innovative things and some that are kind of just a complete copy of it and quite a few of them were popping up out of the Russian region. Um, one of them was we'd reached out to because it was a pretty direct plagiarism and about a week later we just got completely banned in Russia and I don't know if those two are connected. I'd like to think they were. It makes them way better story. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. We kind of, we tried a few things to try and get around it and but who the hell do you contact? Um, we kind of left it at that and eventually it came back and and that was all good. There was a time that um, we got a call from the FBI because ISIS were using the platform. <laughs> um, okay, okay. <laughs> so you're going to have to talk through this one. Yeah, there was an email and a call from the FBI saying, what's going on here? And we looked at it and it was basically just like some articles that were popping up on Twitter and things about this platform that ISIS were using to spread propaganda and that kind of thing. And I mean, it was terrifying at the start and we did everything we could to block it all. And thankfully, they didn't keep trying to use it. We just blocked it. I I guess the learning for us there was really just security and spam measures as a whole. Um, That was something that we started to recognize it outside of just that incident. There was people, you know, trying to use Linktree to get around Instagram security and these kind of things. So with scale comes bad actors as well. And quite a big chunk of our engineering team right now is dedicated towards spam protection and security and just making sure our users are always safe and that the brand perception is always, you know, that we're not some kind of tool for spam, which uh, lots of spammers would try to um, have if they had their way would end up happening. So there's a lot of focus put on that, but it was, yeah, it was just that for us, you know, it really only lasted a day or two, but it was, it was like got to that extreme that we didn't even recognize it until like, yeah, a f- federal agency had to call us. Um, <laughs> and there was that time that uh, when I was in New York and it would have been two in the morning for you or something. It was morning for me over there. Mm. And uh, Instagram momentarily blocked the Linktree URL, which was I can see how that terrifying would be problematic. Yeah. Mm. Less problematic now. We're very diversified yeah. and mm. people are using it across so many platforms. But it, they fixed it within, I think it was like 19... Who's counting exactly 19 minutes? And it was around 20 minutes. Um, 
And it was actually because they got something like 40,000 reports um, that it wasn't spam. It was like they just felt a false positive accidentally recognized it as spam and just blocked the whole domain. And they really, they got so many real reports and realized that so many major users were using it, issued us an apology and haven't had a problem since. Instagram is Linktree's primary platform, but they're now seeing a rise in other social networks. Around 40% of their traffic now comes from sites like TikTok. And all of this growth has been organic. It's only been in the past few months that the team has started spending any money on paid marketing. And that's the beauty of a product that is shareable. People will see someone they know using it and then they'll sign up. And up to this point, the company has been entirely bootstrapped. They've taken no outside investment and have been able to use their own profits to keep expanding. I never really thought about it. We're never like in the um, quote unquote like startup world, so to speak. And like mm. probably didn't even think it was an op- I Honestly, I actually didn't even think it was a possibility. We just, and that probably came back from working around in a family business growing up. You did everything yourself, which took us a while to get out of that. Being like, no, no, you can just pay other people and hire people to do other jobs and learn to grow things. And my parents would always be like, you have to do everything yourself. And like even, even just stupid things like, the plumber would be like a family friend and like it'd always just be people you knew doing stuff for you rather than just like paying for someone who knew how to do the job properly if that makes sense and so we and that's how we grew the agency was like oh we can hire one more person now we can hire one more person rather than us taking a big salary it was always like let's grow the business let's grow something really meaningful here it's probably the same that we applied to linktree keep the business in check and make it all happen organically yeah it's actually it is really nice to see i mean you've been around family businesses your entire lives and what's the biggest thing that you've learned working together it's funny we get we get asked a lot how we work as brothers and how you could possibly work with your brother that closely and i think uh we like to see it as an advantage yeah i would say yeah i I think growing up in a family business and always having to work around family has probably given us that that foundation to be able to work closely with your family and set personal side the things aside to business side and and those kind of things or it all meshes into one and it's all one big pot pie and it's fine but i think you know what we've been able to do together um we've definitely moved faster like we can Mm. yell at each other and not have to be polite to each other like you would with other colleagues and just get things done because we can just be just like direct and to the point um and be best mates a minute later we've definitely realized we can definitely just move faster because we've got a very similar brain and know each other's weak spots and strengths and just play to those so i think it's actually it's actually quite a good thing we can play off each other thanks to anthony and alex for taking the time to join me for this interview building a unicorn is a lawson media production You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. We'll also have our own link tree with links to our social channels in the episode description. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson. Editing and mixing by James Parkinson. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan. And our artwork is by Andrew Millist. If you value the conversations you're hearing on this show, then I encourage you to jump into Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And we'd also love to hear about the startups that you're building. Send us an email or a voice recording to unicorn at lawson.media. We'll have some cool swag to give out to those of you who take the time. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>